0: Well, thank you, sir. It's a d- indeed a pleasure to be with everybody today. Thanks for the opportunity. And is it okay if I... Are you using this one? Okay, I'm going to slide it over. I don't want to turn and hit it, knock it over. That would be embarrassing. Uh, I don't want to do that. Ah, oh, it's a pleasure to be back with you here in uh, beautiful Vermont. I'm sorry I brought the snow with me. Uh, and whatever happened there, I'm not sure. I didn't do it on purpose, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, sorry I brought all that and you had no classes yesterday, but uh, here we are today, the sun was shining at least a little bit out there a while ago, And uh, but I'm delighted to be with you. I want to thank you, Dr. Ballard, for the invitation, and as he said, he and I have been friends for many, many years. I did, uh, I taught Greek a long, long time ago uh, in, uh, you know, a galaxy far, far away, <laughs> and uh Dr. Ballard at that time was in my class. That would have been back in, I guess, the 1980s, right? And uh, so I haven't taught Greek recently. I've been teaching preaching for the last 30 30 years. Uh, But I did teach some Greek, and you were in there, one of those classes. And I well remember that. And for somebody who wasn't very interested, you got interested fast. And you did well, I well recall, in there as well. And uh, so... Uh, thank you for the invitation to be with you and to talk about my favorite book in the Bible which is the book of Hebrews. My love affair with the book of Hebrews began when I was in college. I took a course called creative writing. It was a required course uh, in the curriculum and the professor in the course said uh, we're going to put into practice what you're learning. Everybody will write a 10-page uh, paper and uh, and then he gave us a list of 20 topics to choose from to write that paper. And one of the things, one of the things on that list, one of the topics on that list was the authorship of Hebrews. Well, I didn't know anything about the authorship of Hebrews. You know, I'd heard that uh, Paul wrote Hebrews. Uh, and I had a Bible that said, at the top of the Bible, it said, uh, the, uh, uh, Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews... Which, of course, that's not inspired. You know, that's added, that was added in there later. And so, you know, everybody just thought, well, Paul wrote Hebrews. Well, actually, that wasn't the case. I discovered very quickly that Paul may have written Hebrews, but there's no certainty uh, that he did. So I wrote my 10 page paper on the authorship of Hebrews. That began my love affair, my interest in the book of Hebrews, and uh, that led to me. Uh, going to do later a Ph.D. Uh, at the University of Texas there in Arlington, which is a secular school, but I actually had a Christian who was my supervisor who worked with the Wycliffe Bible Translators and was a faculty member there uh, adjunctively. And he was, well, not really adjunctively, he was actually full-time, but, uh, but he was my supervisor, and I wrote my Ph.D. dissertation on the authorship of Hebrews. And then that led to writing the commentary, the New American Commentary on Hebrews. Uh, and also my dissertation was published. Uh, and then I've written a number of articles. So at any rate, my favorite book in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, is the book of Hebrews. And so your president has asked me to maybe talk a little bit about that today. And I'm very happy to do it. So our focus today will be on issues of background authorship, date, recipients, things of that nature. And then you don't want to miss tomorrow because tomorrow we're going to talk about the warning passages in Hebrews. And Hebrews is unique in that it has five warning passages and they are hugely debated as to what they mean. Are they referencing unsaved people? Are they about saved people? And especially Hebrews 6 which is one of the most difficult passages to interpret in all of the New Testament. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. There are four views. There are five views. One is a derivation of one of the four major views. And four of those five views are wrong. And one of them is right. And I'm going to tell you which four are wrong and which one is right tomorrow. So you don't want to miss that. Uh, We'll have a lot of fun. Now, we will do Q&A. So we'll do Q&A today... Q&A tomorrow. So when we get to noon, we'll do Q&A. And I, I want you to know that in my class, there is only one dumb question. And that's the question you don't ask. So if you have a question, ask it, right? And uh, other people might be thinking of that question anyway and are glad you, like, you ask it because they're too shy to ask it. So if you have a question or a comment about any of this, don't hesitate to ask. And especially, I like questions when you disagree with me. Those are my favorite questions. And so don't hesitate to say, you know, Dr. Allen, I listened to what you said about authorship, and you must have been drunk when you wrote that, (laughs) you know. I'm very happy for you to disagree, and we can engage. uh, And so please don't hesitate to do that either. Uh, So I'm very, very glad To have the opportunity to talk to you today about the book of Hebrews. I think Hebrews, at least until recent years, has been neglected in the churches. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. I think number one is because its background is obscure. Uh, Hebrews is the only truly anonymous book in the New Testament. We know who wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. We know who wrote the letters Romans through Jude. We know who wrote Revelation, but we do not know for sure who wrote Hebrews. And so the, in terms of the authorship, the background of the book is obscure. The argument of Hebrews is difficult. It's a very detailed argument. The structure of Hebrews is difficult. I mean, it's like a labyrinth. Uh, I mean you know many of Becky Thatcher and Tom Sawyer have gotten lost in the structure of the book of Hebrews and the cavernous structure of Hebrews and we never heard from them again. And a lot of preachers started preaching Hebrews and 20 years ago and we're not sure where they are anymore. We, have, we lost them. And so the argument is difficult. You've got these, every chapter is a reference to the Old Testament. You've got seven quotations in Hebrews chapter 1, one after another in a chain, quotations directly from the Old Testament. Depending on who's counting, you've got anywhere from uh, 31 to 36 tran- uh, uh, quotations of Old Testament verses in the book of Hebrews, not to mention other echoes and allusions. And so Hebrews is very, very steeped in the Old Testament. Who is this Melchizedek guy anyway? What hockey team does he play for? I mean, you know, there are so many mysterious things in the book of Hebrews that make it difficult. And uh, so a lot of preachers have just shied away from preaching Hebrew. They preach all the other books, but they're not real comfortable preaching the book of Hebrews. Its background is obscure. Its argument is difficult. Its warnings seem harsh there are some serious warnings in the book of Hebrews. And so for these and other reasons, uh, Hebrews has been somewhat neglected in the church. Now, in more recent years, particularly the last uh, 30 years, more commentaries have been written on Hebrews than probably any other time (laughs) in church history. And so we're grateful for that. There's a resurgence of interest in the book of, of Hebrews. So... We want to think about, uh, talk about background issues today. Now, I don't want to, I'm not going to start with authorship. I want to finish with that because that's the lengthiest portion of my lecture. So normally we would talk about authorship first, then go to date and recipients. I'm just going to reverse that with your permission, even without your permission. I'm going to go ahead and reverse that. <clears throat> and so first thing I want to do is talk about the subject of the recipients of the letter and the date of the letter. Now Hebrews is unlike all of the other letters of the New Testament, particularly the Pauline letters, because when Paul writes a letter, what does he do at the beginning? How does he introduce his letter? He has a formulaic introduction. He identifies himself. He identifies the readers, usually, the location of the church, or if it's to an individual, Timothy or Titus, and then there is a standard greeting. There's a standard salutation, there's a standard introduction to all of the Pauline letters. Hebrews has none of that. Even though Hebrews is a letter. It's clearly a letter, it's a written document, All right, But I'm going to say more about its nature in a moment. But uh, to whom was Hebrews written? And we don't know, because the author does not identify the location of the recipients. And so we are left to glean from the interior evidence, the internal evidence of the book, as much as we can about the readers. And one of the big clues is in chapter 13, at the end of the chapter, uh, where the author says in verse 24, I believe it is Hebrews 13, 24, he says, They of Italy greet you. Now, even that statement is capable of two meanings. That statement either means those who are with me somewhere in Italy send greetings to you who are outside of Italy, who uh, may be former who may be Italians, but who live outside of Italy. Or that may mean the author is somewhere outside of Italy and he is sent writing the letter to maybe the church at Rome, uh, if it's written to somewhere in Italy, likely it would be the church at Rome. And the author is with some Italian expatriates who are with him, and he's sending greetings to them in the church at Rome. And so actually the, the statement, they of Italy, the Greek phrase there, they of Italy greet you, can be interpreted either way. Now, in the 20th century, there was a movement that uh, was predominant, that most scholars interpreted that phrase to mean that the author was outside of Italy and that he was writing to the church at Rome. And that became the predominant view. Now, that view may be true, but I don't think that's the correct view. Recently, there was a dissertation done on that phrase in Hebrews. They of Italy greet you. Can you imagine an entire Ph.D. dissertation done on that phrase? And the author of the dissertation ransacked all of Greek literature from 300 B.C. to 300 A.D. And looked at the use of the preposition there in Greek, uh, the genitive preposition that's found there, they of Italy, and analyzed... Whether in the context of each of those uses, we could determine was does the "they" of Italy mean those who are in Italy, or does it mean those who are away from Italy? And of course, his use of that, his his, his research of that particular preposition, and particularly, was he looking at locale? So you know, they of Thessalonica, or they of Jerusalem, or anywhere that that kind of location place location with that use of that preposition and then the they, uh, that's what he looked at. However many hundreds of those there were, he analyzed all of those. And guess what? In the vast majority of cases, they of Italy would be interpreted to mean those who are with me in Italy, who are writing to you who are away from Italy. And so I'm actually persuaded by his linguistic studies there uh, and I think it likely, I think it's probably true that the they of Italy refers to the author and those with him writing from somewhere in Italy, most likely Rome, and then writing to a group of believers somewhere outside of Italy, somewhere back toward Jerusalem or maybe Antioch uh, or one of those kinds of places. And also, this is interesting, if you look at all of the patristic writers, the early church fathers, and what they say about that phrase, they of Italy, almost unanimously for 500 years in church history, they take that phrase to mean that the author was in Italy and likely in Rome when he wrote the letter to Hebrews. Now, what do they know that we don't know? They were certainly closer to the situation than we are, especially the early church fathers, the earliest of the early church fathers. Now, so you can't hang your hat on either one and say for sure, right? But in my judgment, based on looking at this, I think it's likely that whoever wrote Hebrew, Paul or whoever wrote Hebrews, that Hebrews was written probably from Rome. And then it was written to somebody's, a group of believers somewhere, somebody's church, that's outside of Rome. And actually there are three major views regarding the location of the recipients. Jerusalem, Rome, and Alexandria. And those are the three major views among the early church fathers uh, and and then later uh, scholarship. Jerusalem, Rome, and Alexandria. Now in the 20th century, the the second of those that it was written uh, to Rome became the most dominant. But now, in the last 25 years or so of research, uh, that's becoming less uh, and less uh, probable. Uh, There are still many who hold that view, but there are many who uh, actually think that the letter was written from Rome... I'm in that camp. I think it was written from Rome and I'll show you why I think that in a moment and written somewhere else. In fact my personal view which I argue in the book of Hebrew in the commentary on Hebrews here my personal view is that it was written to the church in Antioch and that it was written to a group of former priests who had been converted to the faith and who fled Jerusalem upon the Stephanic persecution recorded in Acts chapter 7 and early chapter 8. And we read in Acts 6-7, a great company of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's what Luke records. The word great company there, by the way, in Greek means a whole bunch of them. Okay, That's what it means in Greek. In fact, I think it's the word muridas, myriads of them. So, at any rate, it just means a whole bunch of them. And by the way, there were 7,000 priests in and around Jerusalem. Did you know that? In Jesus' day and after, 7,000. Many of them lived, by the way, where? Not just in Jerusalem, where the majority of them live, we learned. Jericho. A bunch of them lived 17 and a half miles uh, northeast in Jericho. By the way, Jericho is a fabulous place to live in Jesus' day. King Herod had his winter palace there. Jericho was the garden city of the entire area of Israel. Uh, rich Romans would take vacations across the, the you know, all the way down the peninsula, all the way over to uh, the land of Israel, and vacation in Jericho, it was so beautiful. and. So anyway, a lot of the priests lived there. Acts 6-7 says many of them became obedient to the faith. Well, Acts 8-1 and following says, because of the persecution of Stephen, that many of the early Christians in Jerusalem were scattered out of Jerusalem, except the apostles who stayed, and they fled. Well, we know one of the places they fled to was Antioch. You had a Jewish population in Antioch already, a large Jewish population, and during the time, of the decade of the 40s and the 50s and the 60s in the first century, Antioch was one of the few places where the Jews and Gentiles got along with one another. And that was true in the church there. Of course, the church at Antioch was the great missionary sending church that sent Paul and Luke out, remember, uh, from Antioch. And so Antioch, I think, is the location. Uh, One suggestion anyway, it's just a theory, of course, no proof, but I think Hebrews was written to Antioch, and uh, so again, all of the, I'm not, I can't, I don't have time to give you all the evidence for all of this stuff today, but it is in the book, and my understanding is you'll get a copy of it, so uh, you'll have right, you'll be able to read all the details if you want, and if that's not of interest to you, the book will be a wonderful solution to your insomnia, and just read it, (laughs) read it late at night, and it'll solve your insomnia problem, and You'll go right. You'll go right to sleep. No, some of it's actually pretty fun. I think pretty interesting. Certainly, certainly it is to me. So, uh, and what was the problem? Now that we don't know the location, we said enough about that. But what was the problem? What What caused Hebrews to be written? Why did the author write Hebrews? All right. Now, the traditional view that was very popular 100 years ago or more was that the Jewish Christians who are described in Hebrews, and whoever the the readership was, whoever the readers, the original recipients were, it seems that they were clearly Jewish believers. There's a very small, minor tradition that Moffat got started, uh, or or proposed in his commentary on Hebrews in the International Critical Commentary series. And Moffat said, you know, maybe these, these aren't Jews at all, Jewish believers at all. Hebrews is written to Gentiles. Well, almost nobody believes that. There are still a few uh, out there. I just think that's crazy, personally. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious the recipients of Hebrews were Jewish believers. Clearly, they're believers. The author refers to them as believers, talks about their salvation, and is writing to them as they are believers from his point of view. But I do think it likely. It's not mandatory, but it is likely that the original readership, the original recipients of Hebrews, were Jewish believers. Now, whether they were former priests or not, you know, that's uh, nobody can know that for sure. That's just my view, which I think, by the way, is one of the reasons for all the priestly language in the Book of Hebrews. But again, there are about ten. I've got about ten reasons why I think that these are Jewish priests. But all that's in the book. We don't want to get into all of that uh, right now. But the traditional view is these were Jewish Christians who were in danger because of persecution of relapsing, and that's the term that they use, relapsing into Judaism. Well, we can't take this stuff with Jesus. It's too hard. They're killing us off. We can't do business. The Jews reject us. You know, Jewish believers, our own people hate us, Romans hate us. It's just not worth it. We're going back to Israel or going back to Judaism. Now, that was the popular theory a hundred years ago and more. That is the le- a, le- a much less popular theory today. Because the problem does not nearly, the internal evidence does not nearly seem to be that we've got a problem of relapsing into Judaism. And we certainly don't have an issue of Gentile Christians drifting toward paganism. That's what Moffat said in his commentary. No, it's in between that. It's It's Jewish believers, but who are failing to press on to maturity in the Christian life. And the author is writing them in a pastoral way to challenge them to press on to maturity and to warn them of the danger if they don't. And I really think that's the best uh, argument or the best description of what's happening in Hebrews. For example, chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, uh, let us what? Laying aside the ABCs of the gospel, what you've already learned, the basics. Now let us press on to what? Maturity. Notice he doesn't say in Hebrews 6.1, let us press on to salvation. He says, "Let us press on to maturity." And the issue there is spiritual maturity. And uh, what does he say in Hebrews chapter twelve, verses one and two? Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, laying aside the sin that easily entangles us, waits, and the sin that easily entangles us, let us what run with endurance. The race that is set before us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. That's just another way, semantically, of talking about pressing on to maturity. That's really the pastoral goal of the book of Hebrews. The readers are getting tired, uh, pressure's there, persecution is growing, and so whatever the case, they need challenge to press on, And they need encouragement to press on. And that's exactly what the book of Hebrews does. So recipients, most likely Jewish believers who are failing to press on toward maturity. And the author is warning them about the danger if they don't. And challenging them and encouraging them to press on. So those are the recipients. What about, or, or word about the recipients, much more could be said. What about the date of Hebrews? When was it written? Well, again, pay, you know, t- pay your money, make, make your choice, you know, because uh, there are three major views. The first major view is Hebrews was written somewhere just before A.D. 96, written in the latter part of the first century. And why A.D. 96? Because Clement of Rome, in one of his letters, which is usually dated A.D. 96, quotes Hebrews. So that obviously means what? Do a little logical thinking there. Well, whenever Hebrews was written, it had to be. It was written. It couldn't be written after A.D. 96. <laughs> had to have been written by then because somebody's quoting it in A.D. 96. So that's the late date theory. I don't think that theory correct, but that is a one of the theories. Another theory is that it was written prior to A.D. 64 and the Neronian persecution that occurred in A.D. 64. Remember that Nero unleashed havoc on the church. And and when did he do that? From a date standpoint, A.D. 64. But there's no mention of that in Hebrews. Now that's an argument from what? Logically, what's that called? An argument from silence. Thank you very much. That's an argument from silence. So... It can't hold full weight by any means. Just because there's no mention of the Neronian persecution in Hebrews doesn't mean that Hebrews had to have been written prior to the Neronian persecution. Uh, And so it could be, it may be that Hebrews was written prior to AD 64. That's a possibility in my view. But I think the actual, the best view is that it was written somewhere between A.D. 67 and 69, and that it was written prior to A.D. 70, what major event occurred in A.D. 70? The fall or the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. The Roman army, remember, came, and you had from A.D. 66 to A.D. 70, remember from your history, what was going on in Israel in A.D. 66 to A.D. 70? The Jewish war with Rome. And so the armies of Rome are for four years gradually impinging upon Jerusalem. And they would arrive on the outskirts of Jerusalem and they would be there for many months besieging the city. Finally in AD 70 Jerusalem would fall and it would be destroyed. Now, would you agree with me that that is a major event on the Jewish calendar? Yes or no? Uh-huh, that's a major event. That's a biggie. Guess what? the author of Hebrews makes no mention of the destruction of Jerusalem. Not only that, but the author of Hebrews implies that the sacrificial system is still in vogue in Jerusalem. Now, if that's true, then the book of Hebrews was written prior to AD 70. Now, again, that's an argument from silence because uh, the the, uh, destruction of Jerusalem is not mentioned. However, the whole nature of the book of Hebrews if the author ever needed an argument in his arsenal to prove his point, it would be the destruction of Jerusalem. You know, the new covenant has come. And the old covenant is passed away. And the destruction of Jerusalem would be the coup de gras argument to make. But the author never makes that argument. And so, therefore, most scholars conclude, most evangelical scholars, conclude That Hebrews was written prior to AD 70, probably from somewhere between 67 to 69. I would argue that it was written shortly after the death of Paul from Rome by Mr. X, whom I'm going to tell you about in a moment, to the recipients back east, back in Antioch. All right? That's going to be my theory. Now, so we've talked about uh, date. So now let's go to authorship. If you study the authorship question, you will discover that throughout church history, all the way up through 1975, when the last uh, proposal was made for an author, uh, there are more than 20 suggestions as to who wrote Hebrews. More than 20. Among the, 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 the less likely candidates are Philip, Silas, Jude, Peter, Epaphras, John the Apostle, and uh, Priscilla and Aquila. The major views, the three major views of who wrote Hebrews are Paul, Barnabas, and Apollos. Paul, Barnabas, and Apollos. Now, we'll talk about those in a second. But the historical testimony relative to the authorship of Hebrews begins in the 2nd century when a church father named Pantinus says that some think Paul wrote Hebrews. Now notice he doesn't say Paul wrote Hebrews. He says we don't know who wrote Hebrews but some think Paul wrote it. So there was at least early on a Pauline tradition. So if you believe Paul wrote Hebrews you're in good company. I, you're wrong, but you're in good company, okay? No, I'm just being funny. You realize, you, I you'll get my humor here, I hope as you, you know. Paul, Paul is a possible author, period, end of sentence. If you hold Paul in authorship, you're in good company, and that's a real possibility. Now in a moment, we're going to talk about arguments for and against Paul, but just keep that in mind. Where I want to start is with Barnabas and Apollos, the other two. So let's start with Apollos. Why would Apollos be suggested as a possible author of Hebrews? Well, whoever the author of Hebrews was, number one, is he a good theologian? Yes. Number two, does he know his Bible well, his Old Testament well? You better know it, to quote John Wayne. Uh, And number three, does he appear to be eloquent? Does the book of Hebrews give a, st- a style of elegance and eloquence in terms of its use of Greek? And actually, most of us, most evangelical scholars, well, I mean, even non-evangelical scholars, believe that Hebrews is a written sermon. And I think that's true. It reads just like a sermon. And I think it is a written sermon. And so whoever you've got here, you've got somebody who knows what they're doing with Scripture and is a pretty decent preacher. Now obviously Paul fits all of that, but Apollos is described by Paul and by Luke and Acts as being mighty in the scriptures. Remember he was the one that Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and taught him more perfectly. They, they, they mentored him and uh, obviously Apollos was from Alexandria and there are some people who see in uh, Hebrews and the influence of Philo who was the great Jewish philosopher, from where? Alexandria. And so all people put this together and say, hey, maybe Apollos wrote Hebrews. And he is a possibility, but the problems with Apollos is, number one, there's no evidence that he wrote anything. Number two, if he did, there's nothing extant that we know of that he wrote that we can compare with Hebrews. Right And number three, one of the three early church traditions relative to authorship was the Alexandrian tradition, where Apollos was from. He's the homeboy. And yet, the Alexandrian tradition did not believe that, uh, never suggested Apollos as possible author. Nobody in the first 300 years uh, through 400 A.D., when the, the Alexandrian tradition finally said, well, it's probably Paul. Don't know for sure, but it's probably Paul. Now, those are the evidences against Apollos. Now, we have no evidence that Apollos wrote anything. Does that mean, you answer me, answer this question. Does that mean Apollos could not have written Hebrews? Of course not. He could have written Hebrews, right? But, in my judgment, the evidence would be more against him than in favor of him. How about Barney? Let's talk about Barnabas for a minute. Here is Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who was what? According to the book of Acts, a what from Cyprus? A Levite. Now who was a Levite? He was an associate pastor. Alright? So you got the priests, they're your pastors. And you got the Levites, they're the associate pastors and ministers of music. Right? And so, the Lev- so here is a man who was a Levite, which means he's associated with the temple. And so he would have great connection with the temple and with the priestly sacrifices and all that goes on in the temple. Well, what does Hebrews Hebrews focus on theologically? The high priesthood of Jesus. And there's lots of references to what goes on in the tabernacle uh, and, and later what would go on in the temple. So Barnabas is also called the son of encouragement. And in the Hebrews, at the end of Hebrews, in chapter 13, whoever wrote Hebrews says to the readers, I have written you this word of encouragement. And so scholars have looked at that, or people have looked at that, and said, aha, maybe it's Barnabas. All right, Barnabas was a member of the Pauline circle, and whoever wrote Hebrews was likely a member of the Pauline circle, because what else do we read in Hebrews chapter 13? Our brother Timothy, when he is released, will come and see you. So obviously, Timothy is associated with Paul. That's one of the arguments for Paul, by the way. So whoever the author is, he knows Timothy. And therefore, he's probably someone within the Pauline orbit. Barnabas, of course, was within the Pauline orbit. In fact, Barney was the one who discipled Paul. Early on when Paul had become a Christian the, and the leaders in Jerusalem said, Ha! He's trying to kill us all. And what did Barnabas do? He brought Paul to them. He said, Now look boys, he's not a bad guy. He's truly been saved. I've mentored him. And Paul saved, uh, Barnabas saved Paul's bacon with the apostles and got him in with good graces with them. And so Barnabas then becomes the first missionary traveling companion with Paul. And so he's a key name. He's a big dog. He's one of the Billy Grahams of that era. And probably was well known in the Christian community. And so all of these are potential arguments that O'Barney may be the author of Hebrews. And there are a number of scholars. That's a growing... Uh, Barnabas has gotten more followers in more recent years. But there's no evidence that Barnabas wrote anything. These would be arguments against. And the treatment, now this gets a little technical, but the author talks about the tithe in Hebrews chapter 7 and how the Levites and the tithe and how that works. Well, in the middle decades of the first century, there was an ongoing theological debate between the Levites and the priests over the tithe. And the, uh, the Levite, the, the book of Hebrews, seems to take the priest's position on that. And therefore, if Barnabas is a Levite and he wrote it, you would assume he would kind of present things Uh, according to how the Levites were viewing the tithe during the first century. Now, this gets... I don't want to go beyond that. You're probably thinking, wait a minute, I've never heard that. What's he talking about? This kind of gets into a real technical issue in Jewish history, arguing about the tithe and how it's collected and what it means and who gets part of it. Uh, And that was going on in the temple among the theologians. Uh, you know, while everybody else is watching Andy Griffith. And so that's just sort of how that went down there. But nevertheless, there's some evidence for Barnabas, but no internal evidence for Barnabas. And so we don't think Barnabas wrote it. Let's talk about Paul. Uh, the arguments for Paul. number one, that first of all, let me tell you that the largest group today that still affirms Pauline authorship are Roman Catholics. The single largest group of scholars that affirm Pauline authorship are, are, would be the Catholic scholars. There is some early church evidence that Paul wrote it. Uh, the the, there are some theological similarities between Pauline letters and Hebrews. There are some vocabulary similarities. There are some words that occur only in Paul and Hebrews that don't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. And the mention of Timothy in the end of Hebrews chapter 13, and the fact that Hebrews 13 ends the way Paul's letters often end. He he sends greetings to people and he has final exhortation, and then he has a benediction and he concludes. So Hebrews doesn't begin like a letter, but it ends like a letter. It doesn't begin like a Pauline letter, but it ends like a Pauline letter. These are the arguments in favor of Paul. The arguments against Paul. Number one, Paul says in all my letters that I write, here's how I do it, right? I, here's my name, right? Give you my name. No name of Paul, not mentioned at all in, in Hebrews. Now, you say, well, I've got an argument for that, an answer to that, David. Uh, Paul didn't name himself because he's the apostle of the Gentiles and he didn't, didn't want to offend the Jewish people, so he kept his name out of it. There's only one problem with your theory. The, ob- the obvious problem with your theory is Whoever the author of Hebrews is, the recipients knew exactly who the author was. His knowledge of them and the way he describes their knowledge of him. uh, There would be no reason for Paul not to append his name is the point. Whoever the readers are, they know who's writing to them. A second argument against Paul is there's no salutation. A third argument against Paul is the stylistic dissimilarity. This is the greatest argument against Paul. When you read the 13 letters of Paul, there, there are stylistic similarities that can be determined. But Hebrews reads way different. Not totally different, but it's pretty different. And so different is it that this is the main reason the early church fathers did not feel strongly about Paul as the author because they said the stylistic similarities, or rather I should say the stylistic dissimilarities, are so great that Paul couldn't have written it. So that's an argument against Paul. Then there are some theological differences. Now I don't mean contradictions, I just mean different differences in foci. Focus, the theological focus of Hebrews is different from Paul. Now let me give you one example. I could give you many. There are several in the book. The phrase in Christ or in Christ Jesus or in Him, meaning Christ, how many times does that phrase occur in 13 Pauline letters? 164. How many times does that phrase occur in Hebrews? Zero. Now, take that and add a list. I don't list them all in here, but my dissertation was on this. There are about a hundred examples like that that make it difficult to argue for Pauline authorship. Now here's another biggie. Look in your Bible at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. And what do you read there? What does the author say in Hebrews 2, verse 3? There the author identifies himself as a second generation Christian. He says those who heard the Lord and then us. He's identifying as a second generation Christian. Paul was converted very early after the death of Jesus on the road to Damascus and he saw Jesus with his own eyes. That's why he could be called an apostle. And so Hebrews 2.3 does not seem to be the kind of of things that Paul would say if he were the author. One other thing. The length of the letter compared to the other Pauline letters doesn't fit with Hebrews 13.22. Hebrews 13.22 says, I've written to you briefly. But Hebrews is longer than almost all of the Pauline letters. And so that's a problem. So here's the conclusion. Now this is important right here. New Testament scholarship is reluctant to distance the epistle completely from Paul. Yet on the other hand it has been reluctant to identify the author as Paul. Are you with me? Okay? That's, and, and, I, and that, I agree with that. I think that's an accurate description. Alright, well if it ain't Paul, pardon the grammar, and if it's not Apollos, and if it's not Barnabas, then who is it? Well, hold on to your seats. Because I'm going to suggest to you that Luke is the author of Hebrews. You say, Luke, are you out of your mind? Well, take a number and get in line. That's pretty much how many people for the last 35 years have responded there. But let me see if I can back you off that ledge just a moment. All right? Now, your first thought to me, your first response is, there's no way Luke can be the author of Hebrews. Uh, He's writing to Jewish believers, and, and it would appear that the author is a Jew himself. And Luke is a Gentile. Now, who told you Luke is a Gentile? Well, my New Testament professor here at the college told me that. Well, really? Mr. New Testament professor, let me ask, who told you Luke was a Gentile? Well, traditional scholarship uh, from the Reformation to 100 years ago, or to 50 years ago, uh, tends to view Luke as a Gentile. That's true of traditional scholarship. But are you aware that within the last 50 years, those who studied Luke-Acts, those who devote their lives to studying Luke-Acts in the field of the New Testament, there is a growing number of scholars who are arguing that Luke was not a Gentile and that Luke-Acts clearly indicates he was actually Jewish. Would that surprise you if I told you that? The idea that Luke is a Gentile comes from Colossians chapter 4 where Paul says that three men of the circumcision stood with me in some event in the past which is unexplained and don't know that and then Paul uh, mentions Epaphras uh, and talks about him and then finally Paul gets down and he says uh, and Luke uh, sends you greetings. And so the argument is, aha, Paul separates Luke from those of the circumcision. Therefore, Luke is not a Gentile. Now hold the phone. Wait a minute. There are several verses intervening between what Paul says about those of the circumcision who stood with me. And and they were three, those three of the circumcision. And what he says about Luke. Now first of all, I want to ask you a question. Were there only three Jews who stood by Paul in his entire ministry, and particularly at the time Colossians was written, that's the first imprisonment letter, one of the first imprisonment letters. By that time, Paul's been in ministry, what, 25 years at least? And are you telling me there were only three Jews ever who stood by Paul? Three Jewish believers who ever only stood by Paul? Not on your life. No, there were tons of them. Paul is talking about a specific event that's lost to us in history. And so he names them, and then he names Epaphras, and and finally, then he gets to Luke. And it may be that Paul is leaving Luke last because of giving him honor of being with Paul on his missionary journey and the people knew him well, and he may be leaving Luke's name last for that. Uh, here's another reason why Luke may, could have been Jewish. William Ramsey, the great uh, uh, archaeologist, Christian archaeologist, discovered in the papyri of, of uh, Antioch that the name Lukas and Lucius were two names used for the same, could be used for the same person. There were many people who bore two names in the first century. Remember John Mark? All right, so now we've got Lucius and we've got Lucas. Now, if you look at Acts 20, 4 and 5, in fact, everybody on this side of the room, right here, everybody on this side of the room, all right, front and back, look up Acts chapter 20, verse 4 and 5, and somebody read that to me in a minute when I ask. Everybody on this side of the room, look up Romans 16, 21, I think. Let me get the right Romans passage out, I want to give you. The wrong one. Everybody on my left, you're in Romans, go to chapter 16. Romans 16. And let's start, let's look at, yeah, 21, 21, and 22, and 23. That's those of you on this side. All right? Over here we've got Acts 20. Over here we've got Romans people. All right? All right, what is the Acts 20 passage? Somebody read me Acts chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. And now there are a bunch of names there. But don't be don't don't be embarrassed about it. if you mispronounce the names it's okay. Young lady, would you like to read that? All right. That's good, perfect. Stop right there. Hey, you read that very well, by the way. Yeah. That was, that was very good. It took me a lifetime to learn how to read all those names. You, you read them very well. All right. Now notice what is Paul doing? He's he is. Where is Paul at this point in Acts 20, verses 4 and 5? All right? He's in Corinth. And what what has he just done? And what is he doing here in Romans? Where did Paul write the book of Romans? When he was in Corinth. And so this is, uh, these. Th- 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 Paul is at Corinth, and he's, he's the, writing the book of Romans, and what is he saying? He say, he's sending greetings to people who are with him, or he's sending greetings to people, of people who are with him. Alright? And so notice the various names that were with Paul in that text. Now, those of you who have the Romans 16, 21 and following, 21, 22, and 23, somebody read that one to me. Anybody? Beginning of verse 21. Now, what do you notice about the names in that list and the names in this list? Are there any common names? A bunch of them. Timothy, Sopater, the more formal name is Sopater. Gaius, these are all names that Paul is uh, listing at the end of Romans. And he's saying, these folks are with me, Timothy, uh, Sopater, Gaius. These are all folks sending you greetings. Now, who else is on that list that's not in Acts 20? Lucius. Lucius. You see that name? Now go back in Acts 20 and look at the names, and you see Timothy and Sopater and Gaius, but you don't see a Lucius, do you? I uh, look more closely. Look more closely. And so when we sailed... Who is the we? Who is the author of the book of Acts? Luke. So there is in Paul's company in Acts chapter 20, Luke. And Paul is writing to the Romans... And he mentions a Lucius. And William Ramsey has discovered that Lucas and Lucius are formal and familiar names that can be used for the same person. It would be like our our today in our culture. It would be like Robert and Bob. Lucas is the common name that would be the Bob, and Lucius is the more un, is the more formal name that would be Robert right, in, our, in the comparison. Now why would Paul use Lucius in Romans 16 and not Lucas if he's referring to Luke? Because Paul had not been to Rome and had not seen them at Rome. And therefore he uses Sosipater instead of Sopater, the more common, and Lucius the more uh, instead of Lukas, uh, which is the more common name. Point being, if this is the same person there is in Luke's, company, or there is in Paul's company in Acts, Acts 20 and Paul's referring to Romans, uh, in Romans 16 there is a Luke and a Lucius. And I'm suggesting to you that they are the same person. And if they are the same person then not only is Luke not a Gentile, Luke is a Jew. Because look at what is said in verse 21. Lucius, Jason, Sopater, my fellow countrymen, greet you. When you read Paul talking about my fellow countrymen, do you know what that means? My fellow Jews. And therefore, Lucius, if he is Lucas, is a Jew. So the idea that Luke has to be a Gentile is a false idea. Now even if that connection is not made, it's still a false idea. It's an assumption that is made. All right? Now, I've got to hurry because I've got to give you time for and A here. You say, well all right, all right, but wait a minute, Hebrews is all about the high priesthood of Jesus, and in Luke's gospel, there's nothing about the high priesthood of Jesus. Are you sure? What if I told you that of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what if I told you that the Gospel of Luke said more about the high priesthood and the high priest and the temple than Matthew, Mark, and John, and in some cases combined? Would you believe me? You should because I wrote a dissertation on this. (laughs) Luke is very interested in the high priests and the temple and the priestly sacrifice. And furthermore, Luke actually presents Jesus as a high priest. Because he has ten lepers, he records ten lepers who came to Jesus to be healed. And Jesus functions as the high priest in the healing of leprosy according to the Old Testament law. And furthermore, Jesus tells them, go to the high priest and show yourself. And not only that, Luke is the only gospel that records that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day in the temple, which is Jewish rules. If he's he's a Gentile writing to Gentiles, who cares? Why bring up all those details? Luke brings up those details. When Luke talks about distances... Right? And times of day, oftentimes he, most oftentimes, he's using Jewish measurement and not Gentile and not Greek measurements. Why would he do that if he's a Gentile writing to Gentiles? And finally, and I'll end on this one. How does Luke's gospel begin and end? Where does Luke's gospel begin? After the prologue, 1-1 through 4, 1-5, all the way to the end of chapter 2, where does Luke's gospel begin? It begins where? In the temple. Look at verse 5. Luke 1, 5. Now there was a priest named Zacharias who was conducting his daily service, the tamid, T-A-M-I-D, the tamid service, the three o'clock in the afternoon service in the temple. It was his time to do that. And not only that, but ladies, notice to whom he's married. He's married to a gal named Elizabeth. And notice what Dr. Luke tells us about Elizabeth in Luke 1, 5 and 6. She herself is a daughter of a priest. Hmm. So we've got a Gentile writing to Gentiles and he's telling us all these details about the priest including the fact that Zacharias' wife is the daughter of a priest. Hmm. And so what is Zacharias doing? He's in the, ho- the temple, he's in the holy place, right? And he's trimming the wicks of the lampstand lamp and he's putting the incense on the altar and he's doing the act of worship in the Tamid service three o'clock in the afternoon and there are lots of people gathered behind him. The, the, the people that have come for worship that day are outside in the courtyard waiting for him to come out and conclude the final service. While he's in there, what happens according to Luke 1? An angel appears to him and he says, Guess what, big boy? You and your wife Elizabeth are going to have a baby even though you're past childbirth years and your wife is barren and can't have children. But there's going to be a little miracle occur and you're going to have a child. And what does Zacharias say? Like all men, what does he do, ladies? He doubts that. He said, you're nuts, that can't happen. And so what does the angel say? Okay, big boy, since you've doubted me, when you walk out of here until the child is born, you will not be able to speak. Right? You remember that? By the way, this is not People magazine. We're talking about Luke chapter 1. This is in the Bible. So Luke records Zacharias comes out of the temple and he has to motion to the people because now he can't talk. And therefore he cannot conclude the service because what is the conclusion of the Tamed service? It is the pronouncing of the benediction. And only priests can pronounce the benediction even in a synagogue. A rabbi can't pronounce the benediction at the end of a rabbinical service in the synagogue in the first century. A priest has to be present to do that. The only time a rabbi is given permission to uh, to do the benediction is if there's no priest present. And then a rabbi can do it. But there has to be a priest pronounce the benediction. And especially a priest pronounces the benediction... Not a Levite, not anybody, not a rabbi, but a priest does it after each worship service and especially on the Day of Atonement. The high priest on the Day of of Atonement pronounces the benediction. It's the concluding of the worship service of sacrifice. So the tamid service, three in the afternoon, and, and Zacharias completes, he comes out, he cannot speak. Therefore, what can He not do? He cannot do what? Pronounce the what? Fast forward to Luke 24. Luke chapter 24. And take a look at verses... Luke 24, verses 51 and 52. And what do you see? Jesus led them out to the vicinity of Bethany. And what? And did what? That's the activity of the high priest. In fact, the wording there, he lifted up his hands and blessed them, is the exact wording out of Leviticus for the activity of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. What is Luke doing? At the very beginning of his gospel, he begins in the temple. At the end of the gospel, he ends in the temple. Because after Jesus blesses them, he ascends to heaven. And then where do they go according to Luke, the very very last verse of Luke? Where do they go? They go back to the temple, praising God. Luke's gospel begins and ends in the temple. And Luke presents Jesus symbolically as the high priest who now having made atonement for sins resurrected now before his ascension he completes the activity of the high priest on the day of atonement he lifts up his hands and he blesses them. That is a picture of Luke Luke's picture of Jesus as the high priest. And so from there it's a simple step to the book of Hebrews. Okay, are we having fun yet? Yes, sir. All right. I went a little long. Let's take seven minutes for questions. (laughs) All right, Brad, come on up here. Uh, Who's got the first question? Brad will uh, bring you uh, the microphone. I think the guy you were sitting next to. Who's first? All right. You had mentioned that Hebrews... Oh, yeah. Hi. Hi. Tell us who you are. Don't forget, tell us who you are. How much do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> your name. Not longer than the question. <laughs> Just tell him your name yeah. and, and what, uh, what you're studying. That's it. My name is Aaron. I'm studying biblical ministries. Excellent. And my question is you said that you believe Hebrews was written to Antioch. Which Antioch? Antioch of uh, Syria. There were two Antiochs. Antioch, of, uh, the Pisidian Antioch, and Syrian Antioch. Yeah, I meant to make that clear. Thank you for that question. I, I'm arguing that it was written to Syrian Antioch, which was the missionary sending church location of the missionary sending church for Paul and Barnabas, and then Paul and Luke uh, in the Book of Acts. Just north of Jerusalem, my understanding. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Right. All right. Who's next? All right. Back there, and then up here. I'm Michael Collins, a pastoral studies major. Um, so you mentioned uh, suggesting that Luke and Lucius are the same person. So there's multiple verses mentioning Lucius as being from Cyrene, like Acts thirteen one and right. Romans sixteen twenty one. Right. And Eusebius writes supporting that Luke is Greek. So, what would you say to that? Well, the, there are yeah, there are. We think that Lucius there is a different or a second Lucius. So you've got two Luciuses at least that are mentioned in the Bible. Now, there are some scholars who have argued that that Lucius is Luke as well, but there are a number of, of New Testament scholars who focus on Luke Acts. Earl Ellis being one, who makes the case that the Luke in the Lucius that is mentioned in Romans. And the Acts 20, that that is Luke. I'm not the only one, nor am I the first, to make that connection. There are others who do make that connection. Uh, yes, the uh, Eusebius, I think you were correct. You said Eusebius, right? I do think you were correct that Eusebius mentions Luke being a Gentile. But there all of the other patristics don't do that, and several of them refer to him as Jewish. Uh, Robert Lardner is the one who did all of the work on this back in the 1800s and uh, he's not very well known today but I own a collection of his, the collected works of Robert Lardner about eight volumes like that. He was a great Bible scholar and New Testament scholar and Lardner makes the point that in his studies of the early church fathers they do not advocate Luke being a Gentile for the most part. In fact, most of them advocate that Luke was likely Jewish. So, I mean, that would be my response. But now keep in mind that my theory of of Luke being Jewish, right? that could be wrong. And Luke still be the author of Hebrews because you have a lot of Jews, I mean, a, a lot of Gentiles who are proselytes to Judaism. And Luke may have been in that category and then converted and became a follower of Christ, and he could be a Gentile. So, I, again, I'm not trying to be dogmatic. I'm just giving you some ideas of how it might work. But that's how I would respond to your question. But that's a good question. Hello, I'm Joel Collins. I'm a business student. Great. Um, my question was wondering, you talked about the similarity in Hebrews and how Hebrews talk we talked about familiarity with the priesthood and the law and being a priest, and you mentioned um, <clears throat> how Luke could have that have that knowledge. My question was, how is, are there similarities um, stylistically and linguistically for how Hebrews was written compared to Luke's other other works that would give uh, strong evidence for the writer being Luke? Yes, the strongest evidence in my. Uh, argument is the linguistic evidence. There are 53 vocabulary words that occur in Hebrews that only occur in Luke or Acts or both. That's a high percentage. That's one of the reasons why the earliest views of authorship mention Luke as a possibility. I did not, I forgot to mention that, but uh, the uh, earliest people uh, Eusebius quotes Pantinus as saying, those who've gone before us argue that the author of Hebrews was either Clement of Rome or Luke who wrote Luke and Acts. So you've got an early, early tradition for Luke. And the reason why there's an early tradition for Luke is the stylistic similarity. I'll give you one example. First of all, well, just for time, just one. Uh, There are six medical terms that occur in in Hebrews. And they occur in clusters, two clusters of three. And of those six medical terms, three of those six occur elsewhere in the New Testament, only in the writing of Luke in Luke's Gospel or Acts. And so that indicates, you know, Luke was a physician, and the author of Hebrews is making use of six medical terms, three of which Luke himself makes use of. We have one minute left, and so I'm going to preempt the last question. Okay. Because it relates to this question. Uh, get ready for tomorrow, all right? So yeah, you, we can do this tomorrow, more tomorrow, and I'll, I'll try to end on time yeah. tomorrow. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. But um, specifically, stylistically, would you say a quick word about the prologue to Luke, um, also to Acts, yeah. and also to Hebrews? If you study the prologue of Luke, Acts, and Hebrews, those are the three places in the Greek New Testament where the style approaches classical Greek. In fact, it not only approaches it, it's in the same category as classical Greek. And that's only found in three places in the New Testament. Luke 1, 1 through 4, Acts 1, 1 through 5, and Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. And not only that, when you compare, and I do this in the book, when you compare the prologue to Luke and the prologue to Hebrews, there are seven similarities between those prologues including the propensity to alliterate with the Greek letter pi. So that Hebrews begins, if you're reading Hebrews in Greek, it begins like this, Kai kaipaliutropos, palai, poly, so on and so forth, patrasen prophetas. Now did you notice all of those Greek words with the sound of a P, an English letter P? That's not accidental, that's deliberate alliteration to grab your attention. And not only that, but there's rhythm and assonance there. Polyumeros, polyutropos. Those are two adverbs that begin the book of Hebrews, separated by the Greek conjunction chi. And notice those adverbs are rhythmically used by Luke. Notice that you have four syllables in each word. The first three syllables with a short vowel, the fourth syllable with a long vowel. This is not accidental. This is deliberate. Polyumeros short, 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 long, polyutropos, short, 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 long. That's deliberate. That's to grab your attention, which is why we think it is a sermon. Go to Luke 1, 1 through 4. Same alliteration with the Greek letter pi in the first sentence. There, Luke is using a preponderance of words that begin with the Greek letter pi and it is not accidental. It's a deliberate connection. And then there are several other examples, even the word order. Greek is a VSO language, verb, subject, object. And so normally you have VSO, but the the author of Luke and the author of Hebrews changes up that in the presentation of the main sentence, and they're both semantically identical in terms of structure. Now there are four others, I just mentioned three, there are four other comparisons. This gives evidence that whoever wrote Hebrews Whoever wrote Luke one one through four wrote Hebrews one one through four. Thank you very much, Doctor Brown. Yes, sir. Allen. I appreciate it, and uh, you all know why I asked that question now because you know how much I love alliteration. But uh, <laughs> <coughs> anyway.